You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Forefront. Uh, it's good to see your faces and everybody in this space. Uh, I know, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I've had a hard week, it's just nice to be in a room of people who are like believing in something that's beyond us uh, and just sort of being in it all together. It felt very isolating to do church during the pandemic, and this feels very communal. So thank you for this place and being here this morning. Um, have you ever noticed how Jesus often um, asks more, of, uh, more questions than he ever really provides straightforward answers? Have you ever noticed that? Um, I think it's a really beautiful thing. And as we start our new series called Unapologetically Us, today we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a church that's unapologetically wondering. I want a church that is unapologetically willing to ask questions and to sit with the reality that we don't always have the right answers or any answers to them for a matter. Um, Jesus, he asks 183 questions and he only answers three of them. I love that. 183 questions, and he only answers three of them. Now, he, that, and, and, and what's inter- even interesting is that we have recorded that there's about 307 questions that are asked, you know, all, all in total, because there's similar stories that are told throughout the gospel and things like this, as well as questions that are asked to Jesus throughout the gospels. And of that, there are 307 recorded. So that if you think about that statistically, Jesus answers one question for every 300 questions that were answered or asked in the gospels. Fascinating that Jesus sort of sits with this. Now, I don't want to like totally skew the results completely. Um, Martin Kupenhaver, who writes this book called Jesus is the Question, he, he highlights the point in the fact that Jesus does sometimes answer questions, but only three in a very direct way. He answers them in very obscure ways oftentimes. Sometimes he'll, ask, he'll answer a question with a question. I don't know if we can really say that's an answer, um, but... That's, that's why that's not part of the statistic. He also will answer questions with like really obscure parables or stories that leave people at the end of it just like asking more questions and like sometimes more unclear and leaves the rest of us for like debating thousands of years what this parable even means, asking more and more questions, living into the wonder and the mystery of it all. Jesus loved to answer questions and just sort of just leave it out there, not always being super crystal clear, straightforward which is a lot, of, a lot of religion tries to be these days, right? Go to their website, here's our 10 bulletin points about the things we believe that we think are crystal clear, when reality is that so much of faith is a mystery. Um, Jesus engages with people often who, who ask him questions and who he asks questions, but, but more than that, um, I, I went through all these different uh, stories, and I was like, oh, I want to tell this one, and I want to tell this one. Maybe I could tell multiple stories this Sunday. And I was like, whoa, Josh, you have like 20-plus minutes, like rein it in. And I ended up landing on this story of the woman at the well. We all probably know it well. The Samaritan woman, Jesus, finds himself um, next to Jacob's well with this woman, a woman who in the culture he would not have been expected to talk to or it would have been acceptable to talk to, quite frankly, not just because she was a Samaritan woman, but because she was a woman in general. Standing there at the well, he asks her for something. He says, hey, can you, uh, I don't have a bucket or anything. Can you, can you draw me some water? She's like, seriously, you're asking me to draw you some water? Do, do you know who I am? And he's like, well, I, I, I could provide you some living water. I could provide you something better than you could provide me. But honestly, I, you know, I, I would just kind of want to drink right now. <laughs> and she says, well, how are you going to draw any water? You don't have a bucket or anything. 
and, and where is this water, and what is this water that you're going to get? And he says, well, it's, it's living water. And she's like, so you think that you can provide me better water than this well that's provided for our people for generations, Jacob's well. Our people have come here and drawn water from this well. You think you, this guy in your 30s, is just going to show up, and you're just going to provide some better water than what we've been drinking forever, where you getting, without a bucket. She's sort of just like, okay, tell me more about that. I don't understand, really. He's like, well, this water is unique, and, and, and it will quench your thirst. And so eventually, she just sort of entertains it, and she's like, okay, let me try some of this. Sign me up. And he's like, well, go and get your husband. <laughs> but it's kind of a setup, because he knows she doesn't have a husband. And so it's really sort of setting the scene for a much deeper conversation. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And he's like, yeah, I know you don't. You've been married five times, and the man you're living with, you're not married to right now. And so in this moment, you know, you'd think maybe she would try to, like, explain herself or engage the conversation a little bit. That's not what she does. She pivots. She changes the subject. She does what I do with you all the time, Austin, when I don't want to talk about something, right? <laughs> She's like, well, you know, if you know all of that, then where is, like, the place of worship? Where is the Messiah going to come? Where is the true place of worship? Super random, like quite a pivot, and Jesus is like, yeah, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. Quite frankly, he, he draws us back, he draws her back in this conversation to say, no, I want to talk about this relational challenge that you've had. No, I, I want to talk about the area that you probably have carried the most shame and the most guilt throughout your life. That's what I want to talk about. He goes right to the hard stuff. There's no pivots. There's no avoiding the questions. There's no avoiding the conversation. Now, I was taught that really Jesus was trying to rebuke this woman. Like, how terrible of you to be married five times, and now you're shacking up with a guy that you're not even married to. <gasps> the scandal. But I don't actually think that Jesus is condemning her for that. Because quite frankly, Jesus knows the context of the time. Jesus knows that a woman can't divorce a man. It's not allowed. A woman is the property of a man. The only one who can say, You're, I, I'm rid of you, is the man. So it's not her fault that she's been divorced five times, that some guy said five times, I don't, I don't want to be married to you anymore. But more than that, she's, she's, she's a Samaritan. She's not a Jew. But within rabbinical law, you would only have been able to be divorced two or three times max. And even though she's not a Samaritan, oftentimes rabbinical law would have been used to sort of like say, well, we're set apart, we're better, we're more, we're more holy, we make better choices than these group of people who aren't following these sort of moral standards. And so even as Jesus, as a Jew, having a conversation with a Samaritan, he would have been like, wow, well, you know, you've really exceeded the max that we even allow in our culture. You would think that that maybe would be the mindset. But I don't think that's the mindset at all. Because again, I think that this, these, these, these acts are a system that has put her in this place. A system outside of her control. We don't know why she's been divorced. Oftentimes, um, it, it, would, it would often be considered or counted a divorce if your spouse died. Whether that was in war or whether that was by freak accident or by age, you were still considered tainted. You were still considered having been someone else's property before. And so if someone was to marry again, you would not have been the pure virgin that they were hoping and expecting for. And so it could have been that. We, we don't know if maybe one of the husbands was in prison and divorced her. We don't know if there was challenges with infertility and that's why she was divorced we don't know if maybe she was, when one husband left her or one husband passed, that she was then passed on to marry another relative, which often happens in most cultures because women couldn't get jobs, couldn't provide for themselves, and so the next of kin in the family would take another wife or take a wife for the first time. 
We don't know why she's divorced, but we do know that she's been set up into a system that has been left her with powerlessness, that she, only, she needs a man to survive. If you were a woman in that time, you weren't able to just get a job and chart your own path and do your own thing. There's many places in our world, in our culture today, even in 2022, where that is still true for women. And the reality is, is I don't think Jesus is giving her a hard time up at all. I think he's calling out this system that she's continually forced to repeat this terrible cycle in order for her to just live and survive and have a being in existence in the world. I think he's acknowledging the challenges that she's gone through. This woman is bold. I mean, to have married five men? Like, that's a lot. You, you, you have to have gained some, some thick skin, some strength. You have had to find your voice and ground yourself. And so she's having this conversation with Jesus, and she's not being this sort of like quiet and shy and submissive woman. She's like asking questions, and she's pushing back, and she doesn't quite understand what's happening here and this man and what his intentions are with her when he's asking these questions. And another man asking her of something. But actually, what he's asking is if he can give her something. Give her, perhaps, for the very first time, the capacity to see the Imago Dei, the image of God in herself. Asking if, for the very first time, perhaps the guilt and shame that she's been taught about herself, that she is not worthy because she's been divorced five times and lives with a man that she's not married to, that somehow maybe she's actually still worthy of God's love, still worthy of a conversation with Jesus. That her best days are not behind her. And that the system that she's been forced to live in, it is not her fault. And so this woman, at the end of this story, she does something beautiful in verse 28. She says, it says, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? I don't think she would have had that reaction if Jesus was condemning her. I think she would have spit water on him and said, drink that. But because he sees her, and he sees the state that the world has put her in, and says, you are still loved and beloved, she says, you all got to drink this. You got to drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> I remember the first time I met someone at a well who offered me living water when I was disillusioned and so thirsty, and I don't even knew, know if I realized how thirsty and parched I was. I was performing the wedding of my uh, college roommate in California, and I was trying to, so, so hard to be happy and to celebrate this, this new union of the two of them and to be excited. And it was California. It was the first time I'd been there, and it was incredible. But he was the last of my friends to get married, and I was going to be single and celibate the rest of my life. That was my lot. That's what I believed that world and God and society expected of me. And I was trying so hard to convince people and to convince myself that I was content, I was fine. And at the beginning of the wedding weekend, my college roommate Max pointed to his uncle and he said, avoid my uncle, he's a pastor and a heretic. <laughs> and so I avoided him at all costs. Maybe people say that about you at family gatherings, maybe? Can I get an amen? It's, yeah, D, uh-huh, see you, I see you. Um, been there, done that, I am now the heretic. And so... I'm like, oh, like kind of side-eyeing him all weekend. Like, oh, interesting. I wonder like what that means to be a heretic. I wonder why he's a heretic. He's a pastor and a heretic. Like, does he do witchcraft? Like, what's the spells? And so, I don't know. I kept like sissing at him all weekend. 
And it was just a fun weekend to just sort of like observe him, but avoid him because he was of Satan. And so then I, I, I couldn't avoid him any longer. And he, at the very end, was like, we're going to share an Uber together. And then he was like, let's stop for dinner before we go to the airport. I'm like, darn it. I did so good this weekend. And we sat down and we talked over a meal. I never once shared with him that I was a gay, single, celibate man. Never once shared with him that I was like disillusioned and, and that I was just so, so parched in my soul and in my being. But at the end of this conversation, as we got ready to part ways, he reached out and gave me his business card. And he said, if you ever want to be true to yourself, there's always a place for you in the, in the United Church of Christ. And I'm like, oh, this guy knows something. I didn't, and I didn't tell him. And I took the card, and I didn't even read it, and I shoved it in my inside of my coat pocket. And I left it there, and I never opened it again, never looked at it. I tried to push that memory and that conversation out of my head and what he even meant by that. Went back to Kentucky where I was pastoring a church, and I wrestled for the next couple of months, really, really realizing more and more that I was not happy, that I was really thirsty for some living water. Long story short, as many of you know, I found some more heresy on Facebook, clicked it, read it, <laughs> became gay-affirming, and on my last Sunday at my, the church I was pastoring in Kentucky, with tears streaming down my face, quenching my thirst as I resigned and left this, new, this congregation that I had loved and served, and came out as affirming, I reached into my pocket for some tissue, and it was the same coat that I had wore that day that Craig gave me that gift card. I mean, that, that business card. And I pulled it out, and I read it for the first time, and he had written on the back, if you ever want to be true to yourself, there's always a place for you in the UCC. And so after church that Sunday, I, I called Craig, and I said, I just left my church. I'm ready to be true to myself. And I drove to Craig in Moline, Illinois, and we sat and we talked for the weekend, and he helped me navigate what this would mean for me in this next chapter of my life. He just sat with me by a well and gave me living water and told me there was another way and there was hope. Sometimes I think we've been taught that when we ask questions or we question our beliefs and they cause us to leave the familiar, that those questions are not from God. That to have questions about the faith or to have questions about things you taught or to have doubt that, that those things are not of God. But I don't know about that because quite frankly, if I think about it, Jesus had a lot of questions. And Jesus' spirit is now in me. So maybe the questions that I ask are not me asking them. Maybe it's Jesus asking them. Maybe it's the spirit. It feels very on brand. <laughs> it, it really does. And so now when I have questions about my faith or what I've been taught, I don't wrestle, I don't push it away, I don't avoid it because I'm like, oh, that's not God, that's not God. I'm like, no, it seems like that would be God that would make me ask those questions. Maybe the questions I have are actually the Spirit, asking me to go deeper in my faith, asking me to ask the hard questions, asking me to go to places that I haven't yet. Because as I do, I will see God more, and I will see myself more clearly, and I will see others more clearly by doing it. We often associate that, but I wonder if we've disassociated questions. And wouldn't that be the greatest lie of all time, to help us not hear the voice of God? So today is a day when we stop and we observe Juneteenth. It isn't the day that the slaves, of those who were enslaved were freed. 
because that was the day of Emancipation Proclamation, but it took a long time for that to come into practice, as Pastor Angela highlighted earlier in the service. This is the day, though, that the troops went into states where folks were still continually being enslaved or the message had not gone to them, but also more than that, for those who had been told that they were free, but they couldn't picture what that would even be like. And where would I go and what would we do? But more than that, even step further, they had been taught and there were people who were born in this United States and told that their very life, the whole point from birth was that they were to be slaves. That they were to be serving their white masters. That they were not fully human. So beyond the physical prison and enslavement that they lived in, they also lived in an emotional and mental prison that wouldn't just be freed by the signing of an Emancipation Proclamation. It wouldn't just be gone and free because some troops came in and said, sorry, these are not your property anymore. There was still a prison right in here. Because they had been taught not just emotionally and physically, but they had also been taught spiritually, which sometimes is the worst of all prisons, isn't it? I know so many of you at church that I talk to constantly, and you say, well, I know... I was taught this, and sometimes that, these thoughts just still keep creeping in my mind about what I was taught about this and this and this, and, and I just don't know how to get those thoughts out of my mind. And I, and I always like to say, you cannot be set free until you identify the lie and you replace it with a truth. Because until you replace the lie with the truth, all you still ever have is the lie, and that's all you know. So, 1807, the first slave Bible was published three years after the Haitian Revolution because people of color who were enslaved revolted and fought back. And the white slave owner said, this cannot happen again. They are not just, they are, they are realizing, they are realizing that they have worth, that they have more purpose than what we've given them. They are finding strength in their inner being. And they are revolting. We need to manipulate their minds. The greatest of all prisons. And so they created the slave Bible. Historian Becky, uh, Becky Littles cites this in the museum in the Bible about the slave Bible. She says, in the slave Bible, and there are only two copies known of this left around in the, in the museum of the Bible, most of the Old Testament is missing and only half of the New Testament remains. The reason? So that enslaved Africans in the Caribbean islands couldn't read or be read anything that in, might, might incite them to rebel. The slave Bible, it doesn't include anything about Moses or the Israelites being led to freedom, but it does include Joseph's enslavement in Egypt. And in the United States, when that, when, when that slave Bible was used and preached out of often by white slave owners, it was often preached from the angle that Joseph was someone who accepted his lot in life, and if he would just keep his faith, in the end, he'll be rewarded for it. Prison of the mind. The prison of the mind. I wonder what internalized racism and classism had to be overcome as freedom came to enslave people of color. Not just physically, but mentally. I wonder what questions the Spirit whispered to them to cause them to question, to see the image of God in themselves in a new way, even though they were taught something very different. I wonder if, like the woman at the well, there were preachers and teachers who sat alongside wells and listened to people's stories and reminded them of their humanity and freedom to drink from the well of living water. I wonder if there were people who sat on the Underground Railroad and said, as you go to your new life, here are things you were taught, but let me tell you something. 
Let me set you free. Not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, for you have spiritual trauma. The questions, the questions, they lead us towards freedom, to our true selves, and to who God created us to be. It's when we're told not to ask questions that we find ourselves bound. For Jesus modeled this so well. And people have used scripture and, and spirituality and faith and tradition to cause great harm. But for those who have questioned people's interpretation of scripture, not what the Bible says, people, what people say the Bible says. For those who've been dared enough to question, liberation has come. Their true selves have come. Living water has quenched a thirst. Our faith is evolving. It is progressive because it has taken many forms of people who've dared to question. May we be a people who continue to dare to question. Mother Teresa asks a man during her ministry if there's anything that she could do for him. And he responded to her and said, pray for clarity. Pray for clarity for me. She laughed and she said, I will not pray for you for clarity. Clarity is the last thing you need because it's the, last, it's the very thing you are clinging to. He says, well, it sounds like you have tons of clarity. She says again and laughs, no, no, I don't. I've not had a day of clarity in my life. All I've had is trust. Our faith does not provide a ton of clarity and certainty. It creates a lot of wonder and a lot of questions, which requires a lot of trust. But I don't know. To me, there's something liberating in living in the tension, in the mystery, in the questions. Because I think in the questions, something beautiful continues to happen. Something continues to evolve and take hold of us. You know, when I'm working with children and I'm teaching them the Bible, I do a thing called wondering. So if you have kids or nephews or anything, but when I'm talking and reading the Bible to a child, my intent is never to get them to like, take away the moral of the story. My, question, my intent is always to help them just remember the story. So I'll often just get down on their level and I'll sit down and I'll ask the question, I wonder what it would have been like for you to be there when Jesus spit on mud and put it on someone's eyes. What do you think it would have felt like to have mud and spit put on your eyes? I wonder what it would have been like for, for all of a sudden this little boy to offer up lo five loaves and some fishes and all of a sudden they were multiplied. What, wonder what that would have been like to help the children imagine themselves in the story. And then when they get into, into their youth group and, 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 and teenage age, I start asking, I wonder what Jesus is trying to tell us here. And then as they become an adult, I begin to ask them, I wonder if there's other ways to think about this story than maybe what you've thought or other people have said to you. Always teaching them to wonder. And for those of us in the church who are deconstructed in our faith, I want to invite you to do something. Go back. Read the stories again like a little child to wonder what it was like to be there and then wonder what Jesus might be actually saying and then to wonder what Jesus could be saying now and what it means for you and for others. The Bible says to have faith like a child. Have you ever heard that? And often we hear that said is like, have faith like a child, like be blind, just believe whatever, just trust, right? Like just believe. But I don't know. For me, kids don't just believe. Kids always ask, why, 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 why? Tell me more about that. Well, why did this? Why did that person do this? Why did they do that? Why would they say that? Where, what happened next, right? Like, kids are always asking. And so I think be, having faith like a child actually isn't just mindlessly believing. 
it's actually asking a lot of questions of curiosity and wonder. And so church, my challenge to you is that we could be unapologetically at people who wonder, who ask questions, who have the faith like a child, and who quench the thirst of people who are starving for a God that can sit with the questions. Let us have the faith like a child that we may come to know our true selves again, that our thirsts may be quenched and we may be freed from the prison and the enslavement of our minds, that we may see ourselves as God sees us. And may we, like the Samaritan woman, may we run and may we tell people, because of Jesus, you have to know. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.